welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Buenos dias. How's it going, everybody? Doing all right? Okay, great. Good to hear. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's some back here, and uh, if you want to follow along. Uh, a couple other things that... Uh, I, I want to just highlight before we jump in today, uh, on your tables there, those, the, the black cards can go in the, the silver buckets there, as well as if you came, um, we value generosity. Uh, we want to talk about money in, in terms of like being generous and not necessarily, you know, the church needs your money, so you should give. But uh, as, as a pastor, like what I really want for you is to live from a place of generosity, because we think it's connected to what it means to follow Jesus. So um, all of that is kind of wrapped up uh, in all of those things, the, the cards, any prayer requests you have, uh, anything that you brought today, those can all go in the silver buckets. Um, the other thing is, anybody know of Peter Rollins? Any Peter Rollins fans out there? Yeah, uh, he's a poet, uh, not a poet, a philosopher, uh, an Irish guy. He's hilariously funny. Uh, we're teaming up with a friend of mine, uh, Steve Bonashow. He's going to be here at the Joke Joint on November 4th. Uh, ben and the Brighton, is, they're going to play, and then Peter's going to uh, do his deal. And we're going to put a quarter in, and, qu- quarter in him and let him go. And uh, you will not want to miss this. It'll be awesome. It's five bucks. You can sign up online, and you can purchase tickets online. There's only 180 seats. So this is something we're going to like tell everybody and you know, our friends and networks of people. So Awaken, you get it first. So make sure you buy tickets, because when they're gone, they're gone. All right? Great. Nice to see you all. Okay, uh, so we're in week two of a series called Eat This Book. I'm, uh, I'm really excited about it. Last week we talked about uh, Genesis 1 to 11. Not recommended that you would take that big of a section and try to condense it into one, one teaching, but uh, if you remember, we talked about the idea that these are stories of humanity going its own way. That in each of these stories, other than Genesis 1 and 2, which is of course creation, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, these are all stories about what happens when humans kind of go their own way. Uh, and, and today... We're going to be in Genesis 12. Before we get to that, I want to just give you, just kind of by way of introduction, a couple things that are interesting, I think interesting about what we're going to be studying. Eat This Book, by the way, is like a, a year-long deal. We're going to, uh, we're going to do a, a narrative kind of, uh, what's the word, chronological walk through the text, uh, through the Bible. Um, it'll be about 40 weeks long, and we're hoping, if you know anything about childbirth, uh, that it's uh, 40 weeks, not nine months. It's actually 40 weeks uh, that a, a baby is typically in, in mom. So we're hoping that something is conceived in us and then birthed in us, a love for God's story and a love for what God is up to in the world. Um, so before we jump in, uh, you should know that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, often in Hebrew, they're, re- they're recognized or referenced by the first idea or the first word in the book. So in Genesis, it begins, of course, in the beginning. The Hebrew word for beginning is Bereshit, and it means beginning. Uh, so in each of the books, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're known uh, in Hebrew by the first word. So Genesis is in the beginning. Uh, Exodus is the names it starts, and it's uh, Shemot. Uh, uh, Leviticus is the Lord called um, Deuteronomy then is, uh, these are the words, or uh, in Numbers is the wilderness. So it's an interesting way of, of understanding the books because these first words in Hebrew often mean a great deal. Uh, so of course in Genesis, in the beginning, this is where it starts, this is where the story begins, this is what it looks like to talk about who this God is and how God made the world. Um, Genesis itself, the book, is broken up into four sections. Genesis 1 to 11 is what we talked about last week, and it's this primeval sort of, uh, telling of how the world began, how God made the world, who this God is, over and against often these other ancient Near Eastern 
creation stories. Uh, and the differences between the God of the Israelites and the other gods that are pictured and talked about in, in these stories. Um, the second part, which we're going to jump into today, the second section of Genesis, if you will, is the story about Abram, who then becomes Abraham, and Sarai, who then becomes Sarah. Uh, God speaks a lot in the first section, sort of this anthropomorphic thing. God speaks often, and all the way through Genesis, it's as if God speaks less and less and less until you get to the end of Genesis, where God hardly speaks at all, but of course, still active. So Genesis 1 to 11, Genesis 12 to 25, so you have creation, then Abraham, and then it moves into a story about Jacob. And with each one of these steps, it becomes more and more narrative uh, to the point where when you get to the last section of Genesis, Joseph, you could like write a soap opera about Joseph. I mean, it's so um, connected and so full, all of the details about this narrative and this person are all there uh, over and against Genesis 1 to 11, which is like sort of these odd stops and starts. You get Babel, and then you get weird lineages and this kind of thing. But the last section, Joseph, it's very, very narrative, and it's, it's got a plot and the whole deal. So this week, I want to read, and as we uh, kind of do this series, I want to read portions of the story. So this week, we're going to read this portion where it switches from the first section, the sort of creation narrative, into the story about Abram. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 11. We'll pick it up in, at the end of verse, uh, chapter 11, and we'll read this part of uh, the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, if you can, I would invite you to stand as we read God's word. It says this, starting in verse 31. It says, Terah, or Terah, took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to, Can- or when they came to Haran, they settled there. Ter- Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Chapter 12, and the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot with him. Abram was uh, 75 years old when he set out from Haran and he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, on all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah to Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills of east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the, east, or on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Pray with me if you would. God, as we um, step into this story and we hear it read aloud, uh, as we study it, I pray, God, that you would uh, open our hearts, that you would, um, we recognize that you're present, that you're here, and we bring all kinds of stuff into this room today, God. And so I just ask that your spirit would be moving, that your spirit would meet us right where we are and bring the fresh, living word of God to us. We pray in your name and by the power of your spirit. All God's people said... Amen. You can have a seat. So as we start, uh, as we go through this series, I'm, I want to always kind of give you a visual of where we are. Uh, I'm a visual learner, and so uh, I love timelines. So as we do this series, hopefully by the end of this, you'll be able to draw this yourself. And, and my hope is that as you read scripture, as you read the Bible, you'll be able to put like, okay, this goes here, and, it, and this is why these things are happening. So of course in Genesis 1, we have creation, 
and 1 and 2, these two different stories about creation. Genesis 3, we talked about this last week. Oops, we're going to actually not do that. Um, we talked about something other than the fall because that uh, has uh, some theological implications that uh, I don't think are really helpful. So we talked about this idea of the great deception. Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, things go awry there. And so from chapters 4 to about 11, you have uh, essentially the, the description and the... Um, stories of a group of people who consistently push the boundaries, who consistently like blur the lines between God and humans, between the creator and the created. So there's this, uh, all of these stories of people going their own way. You can go your own way, right? We remember that, your, um, their own way, sorry. Now, if Genesis 1 to 11 could be described or summed up as like exile, other than Genesis 1 and 2, right? You have exile, you have this curse that are given to both Adam and Eve, pain through childbirth, and then this curse to the land. And so it's God responding to humans, pushing the boundaries and, going, and doing all this. Genesis 12 is like this lightning bolt uh, on the scene, and you have this totally different tone, this completely different voice, this new idea, and it's basically grace. God shows up, and through Abraham in chapter 12, or Abram, and we have no, um, we have no, uh, no description as to why this happens. We have no qualifications of Abram and why he got this blessing or this invitation, but it's this totally new deal. And if Genesis 1 to 11 is like exile and pain and childbirth and, uh, and you know, this curse on the land, what shows up in chapter 12? But blessing of children, right? As many as the stars are in the sky, this blessing of the land that God will give to the Israelites and this just blessing, blessing, blessing. And it's like all of the things that went wrong in Genesis 1 to 11, God begins to address in Genesis chapter 12. It's beautiful. Um, So here's what I want to do today. We read the portion of the story with Abram and Sarai, and then we have this guy named Lot. And I want to I try to look at two different groups, two different people, uh, two, two different examples, both including two people. The first one will be uh, Abram and Terah, or Terah, his father, and then the second will be Abram and Lot. And what I want to sort of tease out here is often in the text we get this um, sort of like... Um, stereotype or archetype of a person of faith and then the foil. So if you, if you follow literature or plays or any of that kind of stuff, you have like the, the protagonist and the antagonist. You have these two different kinds of people and they're, they're often like juxtaposed right next to each other. So I want to tease out some of the implications of the first one that we see with Abram and his father and then the second one with Abram and Lot. So the first one, Abram and Terah, and I want to read this again. And here's what I want you to do. As I read, listen to how the narrator or the author um, sort of puts Abram and Terah together and the differences between the two. Verse 31 of chapter 11, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and they set out, or the wife of his son Abram, together, and they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Verse 32, Terah lived 205 years and he dies. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. 
And then he goes on to the blessing. I will, give, I, will, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. Now, what I'm about to do is uh, my own kind of midrash. If you're familiar with uh, um, midrash in, in, in Judaism, it's this idea of like reading between the lines. So the rabbis would look at a text and they would basically start filling in the spaces between the lines that aren't explicit in the text. And I've studied, I've read a whole bunch on Genesis 12 and that little verse of chapter 11 right before it, and nobody's really saying this. But guess what? I don't really care. I'm going to go here anyways because I think this thing has got life. I think this is just a fascinating little nugget of truth that we get. Here's what I want to ask. Where is Terah going? In chapter 11, where is, he, where is he going? What does the text tell us? Canaan. What do we know about Canaan? It becomes the promised land, right? So, when we think of the blessing or, or this promise in the, the Israelite promise to this group of people, it starts with, of course, Abraham. Our father Abraham had many sons. I'm blah, 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 right? It's always Abraham. But why? Why, why, why would Terah leave his country, Ur of the Chaldeans, if you, if you know the geography, it's like north and east of Canaan. It's a long ways away. And where he's set off to, or where, he's, where he's, the text tells us he's going, is a very, very long distance away. These people don't have cars. Um, why would a, a first, well, actually pre, uh, I don't even know, like uh, a couple thousand years before the turn of the, before zero on our timeline, why would a person from the ancient Near East who's a farmer in agrarian culture where they're, they're, they're like tent-dwelling nomads, why would a person get up, leave their country, their people, all of the things that are important to them and set out on a journey thousands, of, hundreds of miles away? Like the stock market crashed and he needed something new to do or uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is that people don't do this. This is, a, this is bizarre, if nothing else, it's a bizarre incident. I want to suggest, or at least I want to play with the idea. What, is it possible that Terah, not Abraham, received the first call of Yahweh to leave his household, his father, his country, and go to the land I will show you? Is it possible that this guy, Abraham's father, actually received the first call of Yahweh to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, the same place Abraham leaves, and go to this place that I will show you. Is it possible that this guy actually received the first promise of Yahweh? Which begs a question. What makes a person start out on a journey of the unknown with God and then stop? I mean, what makes a person step out in faith and then stop and not continue on? The only thing that we get in the text are two different words attributed to the two different characters. One is the root word yeshab, and it means to sit or to remain. In the text, it's way yeshab, and it means to settle. It says that Terah settles. In Abram, the word is halak, and it means to go, and the way it's used is way yelachu. It means to go forth. Those are the only two differences that we get between Abram and Terah, Abram and his father. One settles and the other steps out, moves. And I want to offer, as we begin this story, I want to offer maybe a, a challenge or an idea, the difference between belief and trust. 
Now, in, in spiritual situations, in spiritual uh, uh, communities, uh, certainly the ones that I grew up in, uh, the, the, the most important question was, what do you believe? Right? What do, you, what do you believe about such and such, or this, that, or the other thing? And whether or not you believed this, that, or the other thing about whatever it is, that determined like if you were in this community or out of this community, if you were saved or not saved, or whatever else. So what do you believe became the important question. And I want to suggest that the spiritual life, the one that the scriptures talk about, the ones that, uh, that I think many of you are after because you're here, belief is not what's interesting to me. I don't, I don't think the spiritual life requires or is interested in what do you believe, but rather the question, what do you trust? What do you trust in? And allow me to, to, to be a little philosophical here for a second, so put on your thinking caps if you didn't yet already today. I want to ask two questions. Do you believe that truth is a set of propositions? Do you believe that truth is essentially a, a group of things that we say about whatever and whatever? Or, a fundamentally different question, do you believe that truth is a person? If we believe that truth is a group of propositions, then belief is what we're after, right? I agree that this is true about such and such. For example, I believe that um, Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that uh, that wall is red. I believe that whatever. If what's true is a set of propositions, like a, a accurately described picture of something, then belief is all we need. But if truth is actually wrapped up in a revelation of God in and through Jesus, a person, then what I think the scriptures are pulling us toward and inviting us into is trust. What's the difference between Abram and Terah? I would submit Abram is a person who trusted. And trust, it's like, it's like the difference between an adjective and a verb. Belief, it's an adjective. It's, it's, it's a descriptive about you or, or something that you do here. But trust, it's, a, it's an action. It's a verb. It requires you to actually move. So I could say, I believe that if I fall, Hans is going to catch me, Right? But trust is a whole nother deal because I step out here. I'm not going to fall, just so you know, Tons. I think one time I threw a glass of water or something, and I'm not going to do that today. But trust would be the like, actualization of something. It would be me stepping off of this deal and having Hans catch me. You see the difference between belief and trust. And I want to suggest to you this morning that as we j- go on this journey of looking at the scriptures, that often the difference between a Abraham and Terah, the difference between so on and so somebody and somebody else in the scriptures is do you, will you trust that God is who he said he is or is inviting you into what he's inviting you into? Now, What's going on with Abraham and Torah? Certainly this, I would, I would want to suggest this difference between belief and trust. But then there's this next piece that I think is very, very interesting. And I'm going to use maybe a phrase that you probably haven't heard. It's something that, that I've gained from uh, some studying that I've done with, with some friends. And I've had the privilege to study with a rabbi. Love it, love it, love it. Both are invited by God into what I would say is the sacred future. So if we want to talk about this, I would say this. The sacred future of God is this 
It's the unseen nexus, right? The unseen connection or crossing paths, the unseen nexus of God's activity and my life. The unseen nexus where those two things come together, where they cross paths, God's activity and my life. And I want to suggest that certainly what's going on with Abraham and Terah is this invitation by God to leave your father's household and to go to the land that I will show you, to step into something that doesn't exist yet. So for Abram, there's this reality that's out in front of him that God is inviting him into, I would say, this sacred future, this nexus, this, this crossing paths of God's divine activity in the world and his life. And the difference between Abram and Terah is Abram actually trusts. He steps out in faith and steps into this new reality that God's inviting him into. And, and, and if we could bring it out of three, four, five thousand years ago until right now, I would suggest and submit that these moments, gang, they're not far from us. They're not things that happened thousands and thousands of years ago to a group of people in the Bible. But there are moments that you and I experience every day where God is inviting us into this nexus of God's activity in the world and our lives becoming one and the same, where they merge and we begin to participate in the life of God. Because isn't this the invitation in Genesis 1 and 2, to participate with God in in God's life and in the world and the world that God made? And over and over and over again, we see this invitation, and we'll see it all through the stories that we study, where God invites people into or invites people to step out in faith and say, do you trust that this God is the God who he says he is? Do you trust that you'll be caught when you fall? Will you step out in faith? So there's this sacred future element. Now, let's flip to Genesis, uh, just to the right here, Genesis 13. And we'll, this is Abram and Terah. Now let's move to Abram and Lot. And you have these two different people. Lot is, I think, Abraham's cousin or nephew or something like that. I think it's his nephew. Um, and there's this fascinating little bit in Genesis 13, verses 8 to 15. It says this. So Abram says to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are, uh, we're close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go left, I will go right. If you go right, I will go left. Now look at, again, pay attention to how the author is like setting up the two different characters. Lot looks around, looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. That's Eden, by the way, the Garden of Delight, like the land of Egypt and like Sodom. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan. Now skip down to verse 14. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and the south to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to your offspring forever. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, go to the land I will show you, right? This is God's invitation to Abram in the beginning. Go to the land I will show you. Now look at verse 10 of chapter 13 and what does it say? Lot looked around or looked about him and saw. And then in verse 14 of chapter 13, same story, just a couple verses later, and the Lord said to Abram, and there's a couple different translations, there's one that says, raise your eyes and see where you are. 
Two different experiences, two different humanities, two different ways of being. One that's rooted in Lot, right? Lot's independence, Lot's ability to see, Lot's decision to choose this way or that way, and one that's rooted in a relationship with God, where Abram doesn't choose. He doesn't look up until God lifts his head and says, now look and see. And I want to suggest that all throughout the scriptures, we find over and over and over again this question of, what does it mean to see? Uh, if you've been doing the eat this book stuff this week, Genesis chapter 16, there's this great story of a woman named Hagar. She's the, uh, like the maidservant and she has this son, uh, uh, Sarah can't be, can't get pregnant. So pull in Hagar and they try to do things on their own. She gets pregnant, has this, this son. And then she's sort of treated like a total outsider. She's dismissed by the people of, uh, by her, her family. She's dismissed in her culture. She's dismissed and she finds her way out into the desert and she has this experience with God and she names it. And she says, you are the God who sees me. And she names this place. This is the place where God sees me. Over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, there's this metaphor, this question, this moment of what does it mean to see? Can you see? Over and over and over again. And I want to I suggest that as we look at this story, the beginnings of, this, uh, of, of Abraham and this promise that he's, he's given, there is this difference between belief and trust, which moves us into this moment where Abraham steps into, where he trusts God and moves into this sacred future kind of moment where the nexus of God's activity and his life become one thing. And then he sees something. He sees in a different way. He sees things that Lot doesn't see. Now, as I wrap this up, does anybody catch what Lot likens the garden of the Lord to? The garden of delight? The garden of Eden? Does anybody catch that? He says that he looks out to the east and he sees this thing that looks like the garden of the Lord and Egypt! Egypt! What does Egypt become in the story? As we move on through Genesis, Egypt becomes the antithesis of everything that God is about. It becomes the place of enslavement. It becomes the place of exile. It becomes the place where people are oppressed. It becomes the place where you become less human. And Lot looks out. He, he looks himself. He sees this, this, this plain, and he likens, he likens the garden of the Lord, the garden of delight, to Egypt for crying out loud. Is there any ways in which we mistake something for what we think might be what God wants. In this story, Lot looks up and he sees this plane on his own, right? These two different humanities, one that's rooted in Lot's ability to see, Lot's independence, Lot, 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 and one that's rooted in Abraham's, Abraham's faith in Yahweh and his trusting and stepping out in faith. And when we live from here, we do crazy stuff and we make crazy associations like this plane looks like the Garden of Delight and Egypt and Sodom and fill in the blank for the ways in which we see something and we liken it to and we're just way, way off. As this story begins and as Genesis opens up, we have God who makes the world and we have all of these different stories of humans going their own way and then there's this moment in Genesis 12 where God steps in and begins an ongoing conversation that we will see over and over and over and over again, where God invites humans 
to live in faith, to trust that Yahweh is who Yahweh says he is and to trust, to step out and to be in relationship with taking cues from submitted to, not blurring the lines between God and human, not blurring the lines between the creator and the created, recognizing our place in this world. Little Michael W. Smith there looking for a reason, roaming through the night to find my place in the world. Not, not blurring those lines, but trusting that God is who God says he is. And so I would submit that that's the invitation to you and I this morning. I want to close by reading Psalm chapter 1. And uh, if you've been reading along in the, the Eat This book, this was the first day, and I just thought, as I read it, I thought, man, um, this is it. Uh, so I'm going to ask, uh, I'll ask Ben and the, the band, come on back up, and I want to just read this. And I'd love for you, I'm going to read it real slow. I'd love for you to just um, do everything you can to listen, to hear what's being said. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, whose delight is in the word of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person, that person is like a tree planted by streams of living water which yields fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked, for they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. God, as we uh, open ourselves up to this story and to, um, to your word, I pray that for me, for my friends, for this community. God, we would recognize the invitation that you give from the beginning over and over and over and over again to trust you. To trust you, to allow our actual, to allow our lives, the things that we do, the steps that we take to be rooted in a, in a, a faith a trust that you are what you say you are. And I pray, God, that as we trust, that you would give us eyes to see the ways in which you are active and moving in this world, the ways in which you are restoring and redeeming and recreating things that are broken and making them new, the ways in which you are forming like you did in Genesis 1 and 2, the ways in which you are making things beautiful and the invitation for us to participate in that, to step into that. I pray that you would give us eyes to see you and you alone. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter by Awakening Community. See you next time.